You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, I'm Baratunde Thurston, and this is How to Citizen with Baratunde. In season two, we're talking about the money. Because to be real, it's hard to citizen when we can barely pay the bills. Hey, you. It's me, Baratunde, from the title of the podcast you're listening to. And this is our last episode of season two of How to Citizen. And it's a very special episode. I promise it will be worth the wait. But first, I wanted to share something about myself with you. I've tried to do that regularly, telling you a story from my past or the way I see the world. And I realized I haven't really shared much about the role that comedy has played in my life. And it's an important part of my life. I think my first exposure to comedy was as a child in my mom's house. I mean, this. 
total hunk Ola. Okay, this total hunk comes over to me and he goes like, hi. And I was totally not ready for like this heavy conversation. <laughs> Watching Whoopi Goldberg and British comedies on PBS. Good morning, Elizabeth. Morning, Hyacinth. How relaxed and casual you look. <laughs> But the lessons that comedy really taught me wouldn't come until later in my life when I started practicing comedy. And I first started doing this with an email newsletter when I was in college in the 90s. I wanted my friends to be more informed about the world because I was super fun in the 90s. And I made a comedy email newsletter that did just that. I lured them in with jokes and satire. They left understanding what was happening with the United Nations. Gotcha, classmates. I started doing stand-up, which is even more committed, more interactive, more emotional, because you're in a room with other people while you're making the art, and they're a part of it. One thing I do love, though, is technology. I love it because of all the super special powers it gives you. Like the ability to send an email to the cell phone company while you're on hold with them to complain about dropped calls. Magical multitasking. And then my comedy evolution continued and made it my full-time job working for a satirical news outlet known as The Onion and continued on joining The Daily Show with Trevor Noah to help that show relaunch under his leadership. I've learned so much from comedy beyond surviving tough times. It's taught me how to communicate better. It's taught me that one of the best ways to talk about a thing is not to talk about the thing, at least not directly, but to tell a story about the thing and invite people into that story. And lastly, it's shown me a new way to connect with people, even people who I don't think I have anything to connect over. It's helped me feel seen and heard and to see and hear others in a way that's much more inviting than just a pile of facts and data. So I appreciate you, comedy for bringing these lessons into my life and helping other people benefit from those lessons I've learned. The idea of something that helps us connect, see each other, hear each other, be acknowledged, that's at the heart of this podcast. That's How to Citizen. That's this season. We are so divided. And the way we experience this economy, the way we've designed this economy, contributes so much to that division. And we've spent this season talking to people working on closing that divide, on making something a bit better. And they're nonprofit leaders, they're business people, they're experts in their fields, or they just saw something off in their town where they were IT directors and wanted to make it better. Well, given the love letter I just shared with you about the power of comedy, I also think comedians have a role to play. Certainly, some are already playing that role in connecting us and helping us citizen. My guest today is a very talented comedian. He's citizen's heart. I don't think he can help it. And he's so good that in getting people to laugh, he's also getting them to think. Apu is a complicated character because he's also really smart, really funny, but he's built on a stereotype. They, they've basically done all this work to beef up something that was built on a really weak foundation, which is like 
racism. After the break, Harikonda Bolu shows us how comedians help create the world we all want to live in. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. What day of the week is it, Harry? Uh, I told you I'm a parent, man. I have no <laughs> I idea. No, that was a torturous I, I question. Honestly... Harry Kondabolu is a comedian, a writer, a podcaster, and a friend. He's also a graduate of the London School of Economics and Political Science. He wrote and starred in the documentary The Problem with Apu, which explores discrimination against South Asians via the TV show The Simpsons. 
Hari, what's up, man? It's so good to have you here. Baratunde, it is always good to see you, my brother. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Before the London School of Economics and Political Science, before stand-up comedy, there was a child named Hari Kondabolu. Can you tell me what your childhood was like? Sure. I grew up in Queens, New York, um, to immigrant parents, both from southern India. I grew up initially in Jackson Heights, which is little India, if you're on 74th. But as you walk to 82nd, you're passing little Mexican communities, little Colombian communities, you know, a little Thai community. Like, that's that's normal. Growing up in Queens meant I was never the only one. I was never the only Indian, the only South Indian, the only South Indian from our region of India. Mm. Like, that is the luxury of Queens, New York. How do you know you're in little India? What do these places look like or smell like or feel like? Can you try to put us there? It's funny. It's called Little India, but it really, you know, it's, it's at, at this point, Little South Asia. If it was mostly Indian immigrants back in the 70s and 80s, now you, you have lots of Pakistani immigrants, Bangladeshi immigrants, um, Sri Lankan immigrants, Tibetans, Nepalese um, or what mainstream would uh, mainstream America would call Indians, uh, but they're they're actually not Indians. Just like everybody from Latin America is Mexican, right? Exactly. So it's like no, this is a really diverse group of humanity. So you'll see sari shops, tons of different restaurants, some which are definitely catered to a gentrifying and tourist community, and some that are not and will get you sick. Um, it's. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's not as bad as, oh, you're going to Kebab King? Don't drink the water. I right. wouldn't say that. But it's certainly like some of the places like are the real deal. You know, you walk the streets and you're hearing tons of different languages and you're mm. seeing clothing that's hints of other places, whether it's a turban or whether it's a hijab or a niqab or other types of ethnic garb. <laughs> uh, which is the term that obviously thrown at us in school. Uh, make sure on this international night that you wear your ethnic garb. I want to thank you for using the word garb multiple times. <laughs> I, I honestly forgot that word existed. And then you threw me back to a, a different time. Oh, we heard that way too, way too often. Yeah. Describe what it was like for you to be the son of parents who immigrated to the U.S. What, what was that experience like for you? It wasn't weird in that, again, I grew up in a place where there was lots of people whose parents came from other places or whose grandparents did. Mm. It's not strange to have parents that are immigrants in, in a broader sense, because even the white kids wouldn't call themselves white. You know, like, I'm white. No, you're, what are you, Greek? You're mm. Italian. You're Irish. Have you ever been to Ireland? My great, great, great grandparents were last in Ireland, but we're still Irish. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's this sense of, ownership of identity and that immigration is, is we all got here somehow and you're surrounded by it. And so everybody has ethnic garb. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in that way it wasn't weird, but of course it's strange in that this is a system that's not built for, for immigrant parents. Right. So it's, it's a lot of we're educating our parents while we're educating ourselves. What does that mean? That means that they don't know how, the, the report cards work. They don't know how the testing system works. My parents, 
especially early on in our education, my mom in particular was more proactive because she was a stay-at-home mom initially and she went to all the PTA meetings. So she knew, but once she started working, it's not like she had this default, like this is how the school system works. This is when you apply to college. This is when SATs are. So that means that it's up to you to figure things out and ask a lot of questions and educate them if they don't know, because oftentimes they didn't know. And, you know, and I was lucky because I had parents who spoke English and had some degree of upward mobility, right? Because they both worked in hospitals. They weren't doctors in this country, but they, were, they worked in hospitals, had access uh, to people who grew up here, who knew the system, right? There's folks who are working working class jobs and immigrant enclaves. They don't have access to it. It takes a lot more work. Uh, you know, you want to go to the PTA meetings, but you're working three jobs. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, it requires kids to like be more proactive. It also means that kids can lie about, oh, we didn't get our report cards. You know, <laughs> yep, it, yep. it means that kids can say, oh, we, uh, uh, no, I didn't get in trouble. I don't know where you heard that. You know, me and my brother didn't have because we had parents who spoke the language. Not to say that my brother didn't find ways to. I was like, you're painting yourself to be little saints. I'm not sure. That's... I was a saint. My brother <laughs> printed his report cards. And brought them home for years. Wow. So we're, th- we're throwing our brother under the bus. Okay. He, is- he threw himself under the bus years ago. So in, in the Queen's era of your life, this very diverse, immigrant rich, where even the white people are ethnic. Right. In that Hari uh, childhood America, what was your understanding of what it meant to be a citizen? Not as legal papers, but as sort of civic participation. What was your childhood experience of a concept of that kind of citizen? You know, it's interesting. My father, his father was a a notable politician in Southern India, Um, went to jail for the independence movement, like was very active. My mother's grandmother, you know, went to jail for the independence movement, marched with Gandhi. Uh, In fact, when she had, I think it was my grand uncle and my grandfather was maybe a couple of years she like went to jail holding his hand and holding the the baby to her chest. Like she she was a freedom fighter. She wore cotton for the rest of her life. No British products. So that's the context we were coming from. So you know, thinking about it later, I'm like, you would expect I would have had a very politicized existence in this country, but it wasn't that. In fact, it was very much don't cause any trouble. Mm. You know, don't get in trouble, don't break the law, don't question authority. It was very much, you know, the opposite of kind of the life that my great-grandmother had practiced. It was, you know, both, this is your country, but we're not from here. And so my political and my brother's political understanding came often from the outside. um, And it came from values my parents taught us. In terms of, you know, when they were in positions to help other immigrants or people of color, they always did. They often, when they could hire people, would hire people of color. You know, would hire black folks, Latino folks, immigrants, refugees. They 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 hired people knowing that if you, in particular, an immigrant or a person of color, this place wasn't made for you. And so that reality from a very early age became clear. But then once I, I went to college after 9-11, I'm a political being. And it's this world where I grew up in Queens, New York, with diversity, see injustice, I'm understanding that, but still feel I'm an American. 9-11 happens, and those worlds clash, because all of a sudden I see people 
with brown skin being beaten up. Doesn't matter what papers you have. It doesn't matter. Your skin's brown. And, and, and I started to think more about the history of this country. And I started drawing the parallels to, you know, the civil rights movement and before, which is embarrassing, which also speaks to maybe the privilege of being a non-black person of color. It took our asses getting kicked to understand, oh, that's what you guys were talking about. <laughs> oh, shit. So that does happen. Yeah. And it's a shame, especially coming from a colonized country who had our asses kicked by white people. You know? Yeah, but I think there's there's also uh uh projecting a little, speculating a bit and and intelligently, I hope, guessing that no one ever wants to kind of continually own that part of the experience. There's shame in it too. You hope that's in the past. Sure. And now we belong here and we're good, right? And until you get hit in the face again. You're not being concerned that other people might be getting hit in the face. That's kind of like their problem, you know? It's a great irony, right? Oh, we got our country back. We're free. And then you go to another place and you don't want to be, you know, a second class citizen or think of yourself that way. Yeah. So I it, I can feel it. I need to understand how your burgeoning politicization, like you becoming this political being, you being steeped in the values of your community and and not feeling like so much of another, but starting to be aware that you're an other, how does that become comedy? You know, my my parents have a good sense of humor, especially my mother. My mother has a very dark sense of humor. I think it's a way that she coped with a lot of loss in her life or even the reality of being a doctor as a young South Asian woman in India, South Indian woman in conservative India in, in your early to mid-20s and having your own practice, which, you know, she was a hero to so many young women. You know what I mean? to sacrifice all that, to come to America, to raise two kids and not be a doctor, that could break a lot of people. And my mom, her sense of humor was definitely a way to cope. And it was a way to cope with the loss of parents and uh, grandmother, you know, while she was in another country. It was, it was, it's a lot of that, you know. A sense of humor must have some kind of evolutionary advantage because why else is it around? How else do you survive without the ability to, to, to laugh through painful things? Ooh, I like that. So with the 9-11 comedy, with the post-9-11 comedy you were doing, what did it do for you? It sounded like you had a sense of obligation for the audience of how you were representing your people and what you were using your time, energy, and resources to talk about. But did it help you in some way process what you were experiencing as a brown person in America? Yeah, absolutely. Because it felt like people weren't laughing at me, but they were laughing at the absurdity of what was happening in the country. Hmm. And, you know, I also, I worked as an immigrant rights organizer in Seattle right out of college. This is an organization that's dealing with post 9-11 hate violence, detentions and deportations. You know, when when you're talking to people, uh, particularly who who are refugees and might have mental health issues, you know, post-traumatic stress, and they need help. Yeah. You're hearing stuff you didn't expect to hear. You're hearing a lot of violent things. You're hearing a lot of pain. And, you know, as much as I'm a child of immigrants, I certainly didn't suffer the way, you know, a lot of the folks I spoke to suffer, whether it's how they crossed or, you know, what they dealt with that got them into this country. Incredibly painful. And comedy, whether or not I talk specific, I never talk specifically about cases, but whether I, w- I was talking about the immigration system, whether I was talking about colonialism, whether I was talking about just anything, 
it gave me a break from really painful work. It was my self-care. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I expected it to always be. I didn't assume it would be a profession because at that point, the reality was Mindy Kaling had just like started the office and Aziz existed, but he was not that notable yet. There was no ex- reason it would ever be a thing. So back then it was very like, I'm saying something because of the impact it will make and to teach people. I was very deliberate in that way. Now I, I don't, I think that's a lot of pressure that doesn't necessarily lead to the best work. I think I, I got to a point where I'm like, I need to remember what my goal is. I'm an entertainer. I entertain people. If the work isn't good, it doesn't matter what I'm saying. And the stuff I'm saying, it can't sound didactic. It has to be. What do you mean by didactic? It can't be stuff that, you know, I get called uh, like a professor doing comedy, which, you know, feels good in some way because it makes my parents feel good to hear the word professor next to my name. But at the same time, it's, you know, I don't want to be teaching people. I want to be making them laugh and I want to be able to make anybody laugh, you know, regardless. That's the work. And you don't you want to give them enough context in order to get them to get the joke. But at the end of the day, I'm a comedian and that's what I'm I'm supposed to be doing. And if at the end of the day you said, you know, I didn't laugh, but I learned a ton, I failed. Um, That's not what what, what the job is. I think it alienates people when, oh, this guy thinks he knows everything versus I like this guy. I understand why he says what he says. I don't agree with him, Mm -hmm. but I get why he says what he says. I get why he has that perspective. That's very different than fuck this guy telling me what I'm doing is wrong. That's a different, that's a different vibe. I remember an earlier version of you. It probably was the first time I ever met you and saw you perform at the DC Comedy Festival. Yes. I'd heard of you, Baritone. Like we had heard of each other. Yeah. No, we, we there is it was a small community of comics who also read the newspaper. Yeah. And- <laughs> it was like, there's another one. Oh my yes. God. We are not alone. Yes, yes. Um, And so you had part of your routine then is you took out, you had a prop, right? Yes. You had a physical copy of the citizenship exam for the United States of America. And you walked the audience through this process that most of us who were born here had no familiarity with. Right. And that I had to see people I, I, I worked for, the community members I worked for, had to fill out. If you're biracial, on this morning, you're fucked. But if you're, you have blue eyes, there's a box for you. Let's make this easier, shall we? Skin color, brown, sorry, we're full. You see? And had to, like, what does this mean? Well, they're asking you whether you're a Nazi. Uh, you're not a Nazi, so you can press no. It's strange that they would ask you you're a Nazi because if you were a Nazi, no one clicks yes. Like the whole thing is just this absurd thing. I also remember feeling, one, I, I like the technique of it. I'm like, oh, that's, that's a clever use of a prop. And it's this artifact of legitimacy. There was a part of it that resonated with me. because I'm like, he's exposing something mm. that most of us don't know about. And he's almost literally putting us in the shoes of someone who has this experience to fight for the right to be something that most of us are just born into and don't think of. You made a different move with the problem with Apu. My name is Hari Kondabola. I've had a great career filled with laughter, critical acclaim. I should be completely happy. But there's still one man who haunts me, Apu Nahasapima Petalon. 
Please pay for your purchases and get out and come again. What inspired you to make a film about your problem with this Simpsons character? I was on W. Kamau Bell's old show, Totally Biased. I was a writer on that show, and he wanted his correspondents to do pieces that were personal to them. Mindy Kaling has the first ever sitcom starring an Indian American. This is huge. Because growing up, I had no choice but to like this. <laughs> Apu, a cartoon character voiced by Hank Azaria, a white guy. <laughs> a white guy doing an impression of a white guy making fun of my father. <laughs> I'd written a piece about Mindy Kaling getting a new show and what that shows about the progress of representation. I, I was going through what progress we've made since then and what it means for a South Asian and especially South Indian woman to have her own show. And when I talked about Apu specifically, people lost it. Mm-hmm. Like they really reacted to it. And I was surprised because to me, this seemed kind of old. You know, like, I mean, everybody knows that Apu's racist, right? Like, that's just obvious. And like, you know, telling Kamal that he's like, nobody thinks that. You and your community have talked about this for the, the whole time The Simpsons have been on, has been on the air. Nobody else thinks about it. Mm. You know, and I, that kind of shook me. I'm like, I guess not. I guess, yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah, nobody gives a shit what we feel. How did I forget that? And so I did the piece and it did really, it did really well. And there's a, definitely a bigger story here. Yeah. I didn't even scratch the surface. And so I pitched it and True TV thought it was great and... That was that, you know, we started making this film. If if someone hasn't, if this is someone's first time hearing about this movie, what's your short description of, of what it is? Um, it, it's a documentary about the impact the character Apu on The Simpsons had, the stereotypical convenience store owner had. And again, him being a convenience store owner really isn't the issue. This isn't about being a working class South Asian person, but... It's how you're being depicted without dignity, really, yeah. you know? The, the the character now is much more nuanced, but if you see those early episodes, he's not a dignified character. And, and no, nor are people laughing because, like, this is a wonderful representation of the South Asian community. It was the fucking voice. It was the caricature, and it was the thank you, come again. Uh, you know, that's what that's what was funny about it. So it's about, like, what impact that had, first of all, on the South Asian community growing up in this country, if that's all that represents you. There wasn't anybody else. That's it. That's all you are is is this character voiced by a white guy on the most popular show in the country that children and adults watch. And you happen to be in elementary and middle school at the time. So that's, that's part of it. The other part, the more important part, is the connection to the history of poor minority representation and minstrelsy in this country, right? And how our images have been used by the white mainstream media for laughs, for monetary gain, for advertisement, which is why we interview Whoopi Goldberg in the film, because she collects this black Americano, which is all, you know, these these blackface images and advertisements. And she's, you know, she told she collects them because she wants people not to forget where they came from and that this is part of the struggle. Don't pretend that, like, they loved us from the beginning. We had to struggle to get here, and this is the reminder. And after talking to Whoopi, I realized that's what the documentary was. It's the reminder. Like, yeah. don't don't pretend this shit didn't happen. This happened. This is what shaped us, and this is what shaped lots of different communities, right? Plus, after 9-11, you're like, oh, they either see us as complete clowns 
that aren't worth their time or as terrorists. When you're scared, you err on the side of terrorists. After the break, what Apu tells us about cancel culture and who bears the brunt of cultural change. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We've taken on, in the second season of this show, 
this idea of how our system of money, finance, capitalism, and abroad, the way the economy works, pulls us apart. And you just added another thought to that for me, the case we're making, where here you've got a massive company monetizing the exclusion of people, right? Using people as means to sell on the backs of the pain of a community they felt was only good for that thing. That's kind of the the economic part of that story, which is interesting to me. It's so fucked up. Capitalism is so fucked up because of its ability to mutate. Being racist and denying the voices of people of color, so many different marginalized people, was profitable for many years, right? And this is what what I'm going to say is incredibly cynical. The great diversity we see now in programming. It's, it's, you know, it's undeniably improved. Part of it, I think, is there's been work done by so much organizing from various groups to talk about, like, we deserve fair representation. We deserve a chance. I mean, that work's been going on for decades, right? That certainly has an impact. However, I think the thing that has the biggest impact is two things. One, they found out we have money. (laughs) And that's new, right? The powers that be realized, you know, once once YouTube happens, once all of a sudden you have like an Asian vlogger with 4 billion followers, oh shit. You know what I mean? Like they they found out that there are markets they didn't think about before, right? Mm-hmm. And that becomes important because the second reason, it's not three networks anymore. It's not so like limited that you only have so many slots to fill. You're trying to get this huge share. There aren't no more huge shares. Yeah. You're trying to get a slice of the pie. It's not the biggest. It's just a slice, right? And that means all these like niches, they become really valuable. So let's say you have a show and the people that watch it are mostly like Asian American folks. They love the show. This is a huge show and they're buying into it and stuff. It's worth keeping on because you get that whole community potentially in theory. You know, at this point, that segmentation becomes valuable. And so as much as I I realize that there's a lot of work done to get us to this place, I also don't think that it was goodwill. This is about money. This is the fact that they want our money. There's some people who would label the problem with Apu as just another example of political correctness and the new version of that term, cancel culture. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of people say that because they haven't seen the film. If they see the film, they're more likely to feel mixed about it. Yeah. There's going to be people who hate it regardless and and are going to hate my points and are just going to repeat their points louder. But I I think people who do watch it and do like it, I've heard enough people say it made me think about the fact there were no other representations. I never thought about that. As well as the fact, oh, I didn't know you were a Simpsons fan. Mm -hmm. Like this is coming from a place of I've seen the show. I know the show. I love the show. I was influenced by the show. Apu is a complicated character because he's also really smart, really funny, but he's built on a stereotype. They, they've basically done all this work to beef up something that was built on a really weak foundation, which is like racism, right? And they've made him a really interesting character. But again, no one is laughing saying, God, I love the complexity of Apu. Yeah. You know, part of it is that he's smarter than Homer and some of the laughs are at Homer's expense. But without the accent, you think that hits so hard? Like, we all know comics. You're like, 
Ah, that was just the voice. Yeah. The impression did most of the work there. There was no joke there. Or a a heavy use of profanity or extra physicality to try to sell it. There was no joke. Just get it just over the line. It's lazy. Yeah. It's lazy comedy. What stood out to me is I I did watch the film and I I thought I saw where it was going, right? I thought, okay, this isn't just someone popping off on social media to get rid of this character. Like you said, you are an actual fan. You understood the universe of The Simpsons much more deeply than a random critic. And most significantly, you weren't asking for them to like get rid of the show. No. Or necessarily even the character. That's correct. You weren't asking for it to be canceled. So for me, for someone to call it cancel culture, they really didn't see the movie. Well, everyone's saying I killed Apu, Apu's dead. And first of all, no, they never said he was dead. They never said they were killing off the character. And the reason you think he's dead is because you don't watch the show. The only thing I might have said, I think, in the beginning of the movie is that let's see if we can get Hank Azaria to stop doing the voice. That doesn't mean kill the character, you know. Hell, at the end of the day, even if he still did the voice, I wouldn't be that pissed off. Because to be honest, even when I was making the film, I wasn't that pissed off. I had to take the old anger and rechannel it. So it's like, this is how I felt. This is what all of us felt. And for the people who say, well, you should have covered this forever. Why are you talking about this now? Again, they didn't let us talk till five years ago. When did you want me to make this documentary? When I was eight? Like, there was no way to do it. Like That's it. That's So, so fast forward in 2020, Hank Azaria issues a, a kind of statement. And what what is your take on how he ultimately responded to the challenge that you laid out, the the opportunity you may have given him. You know, I have a lot of complicated feelings, and I think I'll probably lay, if it's okay, I'll lay them all out now because I think I've laid pieces of them out. First of all, I think it's amazing because at the end of the day, I wanted the film to teach people. That's what this film actually was. It was an opportunity to educate people about, you know, the experience of others and, and the history of this country and of film and representation, all this stuff. So the fact that he, you know, got so much out of it and it, got him to a point where he said, I don't want to do this voice anymore. It doesn't feel like it's good for people. And the fact, if you know, he was on Dak Shepard's podcast and he talks about film and these discussions helped him open his mind towards thinking about the about racism in this country. In addition to everything that happened after the film, which is unrelated to the film, but which is police brutality and injustice. And violence. like all of a sudden, it seemed like it moved him and, and he started going to workshops and he started educating himself and wants to be an ally in the movement and hearing those things, it makes me feel really good because that's what I hoped would happen to most people who watch the film. But at the bare minimum, it happened for the guy I was talking about the most in relation to the character, which is the guy who does the voice. Um, you know, Certainly the, the, the Simpsons writers double down in different ways. But Hank, you could tell this is somebody who learned something and, and he's talking about what he learned and and, and apologizing to all Indian people or, or saying, I feel like I should. I, I think that's fine. But more than that, the fact that you're serving as an example of growth mm. and learning is incredibly important, particularly for white people to say, like, it's OK to learn stuff. It's OK to learn and grow. I was the voice of this good. And for people of color, it's a sign of good faith. Like this person actually, you know, should he have done the interview with me uh, for the film? I think he should have. It probably would have been in his best interest, too, to be perfectly honest, just thinking about the, the process. But he, he wasn't ready. And he eventually did get there. And that's great. And so that's kind of where I've left it publicly. The one thing I, I, I'll add that I've thought about a lot recently, 
I love the fact that this dude is getting credit for growing. And I think it's great that he's serving as an ILI. But the one thing I've noticed in, in the many pieces I've seen is that he rarely mentions the film or me. And there is something to be said about the work of people of color being ignored and us praising the white guy. And it's not to say that he shouldn't be praised. And it's not to say that I need to be elevated. But it is to say there is a legacy of that. You know, the people that do the work are the people that teach you. And honestly, in the process of learning, we end up hurting people to learn. It's the one of the, the, the parts of, of having privilege I don't think we talk enough about. It's fucked up. But the idea of learning doesn't come without someone else taking it. It comes at someone else's expense. It comes at someone else's time. And so as a, a, a man and as a cis dude, as a straight dude, I certainly, I certainly have walked on people to learn and have had to be taught by people who were caring and loved me enough and saw enough potential in me and in society to say, I need to tell you something. But that's work. That's labor on that mm-hmm. on their part. That's pain on their part that they had to deal with because I didn't know any better. And they deserve the credit. So what I'm saying is if, if you're going to do all this stuff and if you're going to, to talk about your growth, you got to be explicit about what you learned and who taught it to you and how you got there. Because th- this wasn't just magic. When you talk about Black Lives Matter, you better fucking talk about like Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi. Because they fucking started that movement. Yeah. So so this growth that you have experienced yourself, you've talked a bit about what you would have done differently, you know, spots that you didn't see, and acknowledging, you know, Hank's growth. It's it, To me, it feels like a, a specific example of a larger thing we're all trying to do. And certainly the way we're trying to approach with this season around division, big capital D, big quotation marks around it, but you were a part of someone else's growth and they are part of yours. Yes, without a doubt. I'm curious, how what have you learned about reaching people on the other side of something from where I mean, you I, sit? Well, first of all, I, I learned that making art is hard and sometimes you make mistakes and say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. And I know we love to criticize, and Twitter is great at that, right? And it, and it's not to say criticism is wrong, but I think there needs to be a degree of humility of what would it be like if I had to make something? What, what if I had to be in the position of making all this? Would I fuck up? And so I think I, I have a greater humility of like, if you're going to criticize something, know that there are people involved and they make mistakes and it's not always for the worst reasons. And so I think it, it's taught me that like wanting to lead with love it's okay to express anger it's okay also to lead with love and to know that people make mistakes and are trying to grow from them and it's not always you know the most cynical take and there is stuff that I have a tough time forgiving myself for and that I'm learning to grow from but that doesn't mean that the things that are wrong in the world that I hate I can't talk about them just because I've done wrong doesn't mean that I accept wrong. And I am allowed to get to lead with love. But at the same time, love doesn't mean I'm not angry. Love doesn't mean I'm not passionate. Love doesn't mean that I'm not allowed to break something down because it's wrong and say it. Love means that I can do those things 
and support the people who have been wronged and maybe even support the people who've done the wronging. You're a new father. Yeah. And I'd love to know, um, I've seen some of the videos you're making, you know, in terms of your your social justice romper room and uh, trying to prevent kids from becoming, in your words, demons, which who could be against that? But uh, what do you want your child to understand uh, about what it means to be a citizen in the fullest sense of that word? That you are a citizen of the world first. To me, I think the local and the global are the most important things. It's a weird thing because the local is who's in front of you who needs help. What what's right in in your line of vision? Then the global, the fact that all human beings are created equal, that means human rights. However, we define that has to trump whatever rights we have as citizens of a nation, and the fact that so much has been denied as a result of colonialism and 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 the systems that have allowed for things to be set the way they are. Like we have to account for the global. We are not isolated. I don't know what age my child will have to get to for me to explain that. <laughs> I think we're going to focus on the local, sharing, helping, being nice, words meaning things. And the global, I'm, I'm assuming middle school on, we'll probably get into some of that. But it's hard because I really, both me and my partner feel so strongly in the values around justice that we feel. And, you know, we want our kid, obviously, to have those values. And at the same time, you don't want to push too hard. If you push too hard, you get a proud boy. But I don't want that. Last thing I need is a, a nerd to raise a bully. That's not what that I is want. so true. Yeah, and, and I think you've got to have enough respect for them as, as a human to figure things out, right? You, you set them up and they'll figure things out. I, you know, it's something I have to remind myself constantly. Like, you know, my child is not the child of immigrants. I was the child of, of immigrants. Their experience is going to be extremely different. You know, I don't know what it's like to not have that experience. And, and they're not going to know what it's like to have my experience. That's just how everything works. Yeah. This is tricky. And, you know, I need to respect the fact that he's his own being, you know. Mm. I will listen to this at some point and this will remind me. I hope he brings this podcast up at some point. It would be my great honor if I could serve as a moment of comeuppance between your son and yeah. you as he shoves this episode of this podcast into your face. But dad, you told Baratunde you would give me room to grow and be my own person. Don't you understand? It was on brand at the time, son. <laughs> Saying that was on brand. <laughs> Marxism was a brand at the time, son. Oh, Hari. Thank you so much, my friend. This has been a joyful, heart-opening, love-leading conversation with you. I really appreciate it. Baratunde, you are my friend and brother. We've known each other a long time. Your success is my success, and I'm so happy you have this podcast. So how are you feeling now? I mean, I'll tell you how I'm feeling. I'm feeling like 
I just had the most smooth, delicious, just mwah, incredible nightcap this season could have ever asked for. I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I clearly did. Hari Kondabolu is a human in this divided country. He's faced adversity, but he hasn't let that stop him from believing in the bigger picture. And I know he will insist that he's here to entertain first. And if people learn something, that's up to them. And Yeah, Hari, whatever. Based on his experience, based on the jobs he's had, the graduate degree he holds, and clearly the way he sees the world, Hari can't help it. He's helping us citizen. I hope this is an inspiration for you, that there are so many ways to citizen. It can be activism. It can be research. It can be out in the streets protest. It can be policy work or comedy. We can all choose to lead with love and kindness wherever we are. So do me a favor. There is a lot going on in the world. No one can handle it all by themselves, and we're not supposed to. No one can get it right all the time, and we're not supposed to. Be gentle with yourself. We're in a constant cycle. We learn, we make mistakes, we forgive ourselves, we move forward. Do this last thing with me. Let's take a breath together. Now, why don't you go ahead and tell, like, everybody you know about this podcast. Seriously, just tell everybody you know. Appreciate you. And now, time for some actions. When have you grown from a mistake? And did anyone else help you with that growth? When have you helped others grow? To be more informed, I'm asking you, to tune in to Hari. Watch The Problem with Apu, his film, streaming on HBO Max, and check out his Netflix special, Warn Your Relatives. Finally, I want you to do something around immigration and refugee rights. It's where Hari got his career started and you heard so much of his passion. I asked him, what group would you have me send people to? And he said, Raices, R-A-I-C-E-S, Texas.org. Their website has so much you can do to help the people who are literally trying to become citizens, who are sacrificing so much to be in this country and putting up with so much in that journey. You can extend a humanizing hand to our fellow human beings. If you take any of these actions, be sure to brag online about it. Your super citizen skills. Use the hashtag HowToCitizen. You can also send us general or specific feedback and ideas to comments at howtocitizen.com. And speaking of that domain name, check out howtocitizen.com to sign up for our newsletter, learn about upcoming guests, and way more ways to upgrade your citizen game. If you like the show, please spread the word. If you don't, definitely just keep it to yourself. How to Citizen with Baratunde is a production of iHeartRadio Podcasts and Dustlight Productions. Our executive producers are me, Baratunde Thurston, Elizabeth Stewart, and Misha Youssef. Our producers are Stephanie Cohn and Ali Kiltz. Kelly Prime is our editor. Valentino Rivera is our engineer. And Sam Paulson is our apprentice. Original music by Andrew Eben. This episode was produced and sound designed by Ali Kiltz. Special thanks to Joelle Smith from iHeartRadio. 
from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.